Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark, to the 8th chapter, where this morning we are going to be considering together verses 27 through 30. That's Mark chapter 8, 27 through 30, and you can find that passage on page 989 in your Pew Bibles. We are, of course, continuing this morning to make our way through Mark's accounting of the gospel. You will remember that the last time that we looked at it together, I said that we were nearing, or even what I would consider to be at the halfway point of the gospel according to Mark. The passage that is before us this morning really is indeed the pivot point of the entire book. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But first, allow me to just briefly remind you of where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at the first 26 verses of this eighth chapter of Mark. You probably remember that. It's a much lengthier section than we usually look at together. And you will remember that we broke those 26 verses down really into just four basic parts. The first part was that event known to us as the feeding of the 4,000. You remember this was the second feeding of this kind that we have looked at together in Mark. The first, the feeding of the 5,000, was made up predominantly of Jewish people. Those who were intrigued by and even following Jesus into the wilderness to hear his teaching and to see him work miracles. We spent quite a bit of time looking at the very clear messianic implications of that feeding. Remember, I pointed out its tie with Psalm 23. This was the great shepherd king leading his people in the wilderness to the green grass where he would provide them with bread, where he would feed, nurture, and preserve his sheep. The second feeding then was filled with those same messianic implications, though this time we found out in the second feeding that this was a crowd made up mostly of Gentiles. Not only highlighting for us the inclusion of the Gentiles in the promised kingdom of God, but showing us even what that kingdom will look like as Jews and Gentiles together sit at the feet of the great shepherd and are fed by the great shepherd king. So this second feeding was the first of the four basic parts that we looked at. The second and third parts then flowed out of that event. So we have this feeding that takes place. And then as I mentioned to you, two types of unbelief begin to emerge. The first to emerge came out of the Pharisees demanding a sign or a show of power from Jesus, which was born out of the blatant and what I would call the willing unbelief of the Pharisees. That was the first type. And beloved, I know I say it all the time, but I really want to make sure that we understand who these men were, the Pharisees and the scribes. These were not men who were just a little bit off in their understanding of who Jesus Christ was. They were not merely confused, but sincere followers of God. They were evil. They were wicked men. 
They were never going to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the long-awaited, the long-promised Messiah. They made up their minds that he was a false prophet, and they were doing everything within their power to publicly discredit him. They hated him. They were unbelievers. They were blind. They should have known better, having been those who had spent a great deal of their lives studying God's holy law and attempting to interpret it. However, theirs was not a certainly knowing that could ever lead them to heartily trusting. It was knowledge without any Holy Spirit-supplied understanding. And as such, it only steered them farther and farther and farther away from the truth. Willing unbelief, or what I would call utter spiritual blindness. They would not and they could not see and perceive. The second type of unbelief that began to emerge, though, was that of the disciples. They possessed what I would call hopeful unbelief. They too knew some things. And to be fair, they knew enough to make very real sacrifices in their lives to be in the place that they currently were in, sitting at the feet of Jesus, serving alongside of him, watching day in, day out his miraculous power, taking in the powerful words of his teaching. They knew some things. They were eyewitnesses to so much that had transpired in this short time that they had known Jesus. They just did not fully perceive it yet. And so we found them in the boat after the feeding, the two feeding miracles and after Jesus's warning to them about the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees being a little bit of yeast that will leaven the whole lump. We find them foolishly arguing and fretting over their own lack of bread and how they were ever going to feed themselves on this boat with no food aboard. And it seems ridiculous to us that these men could be so blind to what had to be going on all around them, proving that we too have our own blind spots when it comes to the God-given gift of faith. We too easily forget all that has been done for us and why it was so necessary to have God's grace invade their lives, invade our own lives. We too are often blinded by the fog of our own sin and the weakness of our own understanding. We're going to speak more of that this morning. However, Jesus displays an otherworldly amount of patience with these men. He does not simply wash his hands of them because of their weak faith. He does not just move on to see if he can find some disciples whose skulls are perhaps not quite as thick as these men's skulls appear to be. No, Jesus has compassion on them. He loves them. And he teaches them. And he continually opens them up to the truth of his word. And we saw the last time that he even mercifully taught them in the form of yet another example of miraculous power that also served as an almost allegorical lesson regarding faith in the Christian life. Jesus 
you will remember, had compassion on a blind man who had apparently at some point in his difficult life had lost his vision. And Mark tells us that Jesus took this man away from the crowds again to a private place. And he touched his broken eyes. And he asked the man what he could see. And his answer is why I think we can safely say that at some point in his life, this man probably had possessed sight. He names known things. He says, well, I see men like trees walking. You understand, he sees something. But he does not at this point see anything clearly. And so Jesus lovingly then touches him again. And the man's sight is wholly restored and he rejoices to see with clarity. And beloved, the parallels to these disciples and their hopeful unbelief is clear here. They had begun to see who Jesus was, but they did not yet understand it. They knew things, but they did not fully perceive them. In other words, they could see men like trees walking. But the clarity, which would certainly be coming, was not yet there. However, in the text that is before us this morning, we have the privilege of seeing that clarity arrive in full force through this weighty confession of the Apostle Peter. And it's my hope this morning to consider that confession And the implications of that confession for all of those who have been truly given eyes that truly see and ears that truly hear and perceive through the gracious power of the Holy Spirit. And in considering that perception as it arrives here with Peter and the disciples, I want to look at the process that took place in bringing these disciples leading up to this point. And it's my hope to point out to you just a few things here to encourage all of us as we begin to unpack what I would call the normal Christian life. So I'd like you to follow along with me as I read from God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. I'm having such a tough time talking this morning. His inerrant word from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi and on the road, he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come before your word. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life. I pray, Father, that we would hear clearly the teaching of your word through the power of your spirit so that being transformed by your word, 
we could live more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that in condensing what is really going on here in this wonderful confession, that we are still somehow made aware of at least some of the true weight of glory that is to be witnessed by us here. Honestly, beloved, we could spend months, we could spend years unpacking just these few words in this confession. We're not going to be doing that in this series, so I'm going to make a very weak and feeble attempt at condensing it for us to just a few points in the interest of our time this morning. And as always, I hope that your own study will merely begin and certainly not end here. If you're not already doing it, I beg you, please spend some time unpacking this text and meditating upon the truth of it in the days to come. And I can assure you that it will be time well spent. We have now arrived at what truly is the pivot point or what I would call the epicenter of the gospel according to Mark in the text that is before us this morning. And I would say that the first half of Mark's gospel is made up beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. And then that runs all the way through chapter 8, verse 28. It then pivots on verse 29 of chapter 8 and develops the second half all the way through then the end of the book, chapter 16, verse 20. And so I'm going to stretch your memories a little bit and ask you, do you remember how this study, how these sermons began, looking at the beginning of Mark, way back at the beginning of Mark, to verse 1 of chapter 1. Do you remember what that verse said? It said, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. After opening this gospel account in that way, we have seen that Mark has been on a mission to get before us the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have watched that revelation unfolding before these people who did not fully understand what truly was going on with the man Jesus. They were asking questions again and again and again, and some of them will probably spark your memory. They were asking questions like, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this who teaches with such strange, new, weighty authority? Who is this who commands the wind and the waves and is answered with immediate immediate obedience? Who is this who claims to forgive sins when everyone knows that only God can forgive sins? Who is this who heals our infirmities so completely through every single one of these powerful miracles? And I think that these miracles, beloved, are well worth our consideration just briefly here, leading up to this great confession of Peter that really finally and fully answers all of these constant questions surrounding the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Mark is doing something here. 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he opens up the truth of who Jesus is to us in this gospel account. And one of the questions that I've had in my own mind as I've been studying this book of Mark now for the last couple of years has been, why these infirmities? Have you ever thought about that? Why is Jesus not out healing cancer or diabetes or debilitating mental illnesses? Why is he not just reversing the devastating effects of old age and all the trouble that so routinely goes along with that? Why these infirmities? Why these miracles? And it seems like his focus is on things that are probably not quite as common as those other things. If you study them, if you study the miracles, that is, you'll find that they can all be easily placed under really just a few categories. They are blindness, death, lame, and unclean. Most of the miracles fall into one of these groups. Why these groups? Well, beloved, I think that we touched on it the last time. They were more than just instances of the power of Almighty God being displayed. They were that, but they were more than that. That's what's often pointed to as the reason that Jesus was out working miracles. To prove his deity. If that is indeed the case, then I have to ask in my own mind, I ask, why would he... Why was he so intent on privacy then? Why was he so intent on not letting the word get out that he was doing these powerful things? It really doesn't fit with his constantly trying to keep these things on the down low if it were merely to prove his deity. I want to be clear. I think they were that, but they were certainly much more than that. They were pointing to something greater than just relief found in a physical deliverance from a particular malady. We considered it when we looked at the blind man. His physical need of sight was indicative of a greater spiritual blindness. One that only God himself can provide the remedy for. And we saw it with the deaf man in chapter 7. Yes, in the broken creation, things like the ability to hear are often lost. And suffering ensues as a result of this world being broken by sin. And Jesus came in, and in his compassion, he healed broken hearing to be sure. But it pointed to a bigger problem that only he could remedy. The Holy Spirit allowing us to hear the word of God and to perceive it, to understand it. You think about the lame, those who had lost the ability to be mobile under their own power. What they desired, what they felt that they most needed was to rise up and walk. They were suffering physically. It was real. It was painful. Certainly, it was a miserable existence. 
And Jesus had compassion on them. And he was moved to show mercy and to fix what was physically broken. Not in order that his fame for fixing physical ailments would spread like wildfire. He crushed that. Not so his power being witnessed would convince even the most dedicated skeptic. He could have raised entire graveyards of people and there would have still been unbelief all around him. But beloved, he did it to show us that only his grace will ever allow a sinner to rise up to new life and walk in grace and truth and peace. There were those who were certainly suffering from all manner of uncleanness. There were those who were buried under the very real weight of the isolation and the filthiness and the discomfort of diseases like leprosy. It was real. It was awful. It was suffering. And Jesus, in his great compassion, did the unthinkable. He reached out his pure, undefiled hands and he gave a healing touch that would make the people clean. And their skin was restored. Their isolation was replaced with loving community. It was relief. It was real. And it points us towards a much more desperate filthiness than just a skin disease. The filthiness of sin. And it leads us to the cleansing that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, you understand, Jesus took our filthiness and he gave us his perfection, his spotlessness in its place. He takes what's filthy and he makes it clean for eternity. Beloved, do you understand? These miracles were driving the people, they're driving us for that matter, to consider the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you, do you see it here? Because this is leading somewhere. Mark is establishing Jesus very clearly in these opening chapters as the Messiah, the promised one. And all these miracles point us towards that. We've spoken of them already. I'm not going to rehash them all again, but you get the point, right? Think about Isaiah 35. Verses five and six, where Isaiah says, speaking of the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Do you see it? Jesus spoke in this way regarding himself when he stood in his own hometown synagogue. You remember that, right? What did he read when he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth? He read Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty from ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You see, that's what's going on here in Mark. He is showing us who this man from Nazareth truly is according to what he's doing, according to the scriptures themselves. Beloved, the entire first half of this account of Mark has been him showing us these things again and again and again. And it only changes in verse 29 when it becomes very clear that by the grace of Almighty God, Peter, the fisherman, now gets it. He understands by God-given faith because of God's grace. And we need to see that. He understands weakly to be sure. But he's understanding, he's becoming more and more clear with every passing day. With every passing miracle. With every lesson, with every kindness committed by the gracious hands of Jesus Christ, his Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the culmination of every single promise, every single shadow, and every single prophecy. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, the point we're at, the point that Marcus is bringing you to, is asking you the question, do you see him? Do you see him? I want you to look this morning at the way that even this confession plays out. Jesus first asked the disciples, in essence, who does the world think I am? Right? He says, who do men say that I am? We've been at least in one sense hearing the answer to that very question all along here in Mark as Jesus is revealed and he encounters unbelief at every single turn. This is what unbelief looks like in light of the revelation of Almighty God? They answer, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, just another great prophet. And all of them had missed the point. This is the answer of unbelief. Really, in the whole first half of this account given to us by Mark, who is the only one to answer that question with anything like the truth? Does anyone know? Only one in the first eight chapters. Julianne actually raised her hand. She was like, I think I want to take this on. I'm going to give it away, Julianne. I won't put you on the spot. It was the demons. The demons knew who he was. You are the Christ, the Son of God. That's it, though. They recognized him and they rightly were terrified of him. But no one else to this point had been. 
And so here they are on a road in Caesarea Philippi, a great Roman city built to honor and named after Caesar. A place where the Caesar was even honored as Lord by many. And it's here that Jesus puts this question to his disciples, showing the dividing line in all of humanity between unbelief and belief, between faithlessness and true faith, between really knowing that leads to actually trusting true faith. Who do men say that I am? Beloved, anything at all besides the promised Messiah, the Redeemer, the Restorer of Israel, the Son of God, anything else is the wrong answer. Any look at Jesus apart from the grace of God and his precious gift of faith comes to the exact same conclusion. They see him. They will acknowledge him. He could even be a lot of great things. He's just not the Savior. Just not God in flesh. It is the consistent, constant answer of unbelief. And beloved, I cannot stress enough how important the answer to this question truly is. Who is Jesus Christ to you? And what frames that answer? There's only one answer that is right and true and that flows from Holy Spirit-directed faith. And Peter answers the great question that has been swirling around Jesus for the first eight and a half chapters of the Gospel according to Mark. Jesus hears from them the answer of unbelief and then he turns to them and he says, who do you say that I am? This is a pivotal moment. And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You understand what he's saying? Peter is saying, it's you. It's really you. I see you now. I see you clearly. You are the Christ, the Son of God. All of Mark has been laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been revealing Jesus Christ and it leads up to this point of no return. Here is Jesus Christ. Who is he to you? And the rest of the book will deal with the implications of that answer. Jesus will move on from here steadily towards Jerusalem and towards the cross where he will finish the work of redemption. And as they make their way towards his death, he will begin to prepare these disciples for the very difficult road that lie ahead of them. But beloved, faith will be nourished and strengthened and it will grow from this point on. And I want to close this morning encouraging you by getting you to just sort of pause And I want you to consider the road to faith for Peter. Again, Peter was a fisherman. He was not a professional theologian. He was not a scribe or a Pharisee. He was a fisherman. (coughs) He sees Jesus and he's convinced of something. He can't explain it yet, but Jesus says, come and Peter leaves everything and he goes. 
He witnesses firsthand the power of God incarnate again and again and again. And he sees something. He sees men like trees walking. But he doesn't see with clarity. And all these miracles are driving him to the core, to the precious truth of the gospel. Blind eyes will see. Deaf ears will hear. Lame legs will walk. In fact, they will leap for joy. Uncleanliness it will be washed and cleansed and replaced with cleanliness for eternity. And the Holy Spirit graciously opens the eyes of Peter to these things and he says the only four words that faith gives in response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is you. You are the Christ. Undoubtedly, Peter still does not know it all. In fact, especially with Peter, we will see his faith moving forward in what I would call fits and starts, stumbles and falls. Beloved, we need to see this is the normal Christian life. This fisherman of weak and sputtering faith will continue to grow in grace and faith and he will go on to present some of the most powerful words recorded regarding this Savior and who he truly is and why it matters. He came to save Peter from his sin. And Peter sees it now. He came to save us. Let me ask you something. Are you, do you find yourself discouraged this morning in your own understanding? Do you sometimes find yourself doubting where it is that you really stand? Do you often feel as if you were merely floundering in your own sanctification process? Listen to me, beloved. The word of God is clear. Jesus the Christ loves you. And he is patient with you. And he knows your end from your beginning. And he's merciful towards you just as he is with these disciples. He loves you with an unquenchable love. And he shows you that he will never, ever let you go. We're going to be looking at this a lot in the weeks to come. This morning, though, I want to encourage you with the proof of just how far God will graciously bring you in your understanding as he prepares you to one day bask in the presence of his glory. I want to show you what this simple yet weighty confession turns into for the Apostle Peter and his understanding of this man, Jesus, and who he was. And you remember, this is the guy who had missed the point of the bread altogether. He didn't even come close, right? Now he comes to this simple yet weighty confession. You are the Christ. He moves from the ultimate acknowledge of faith. You are the Christ, the son of God to this in second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three. And I'm going to close with it this morning because I want the word of God to ring in our ears as we consider our own confession as to who this Jesus really is. Peter says, As his divine power 
has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add virtue to your faith, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. It is forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, Stumbling along the way is progress. Peter is proof. Know that God is patiently, lovingly working these things in your life right now. And he's not calling on you to earn the right to have them as your own. But by opening your eyes to your need of your dependence upon him by picking you up and helping your legs to get moving again and again and again by showing you that all you need is found only and entirely in him, in his person, in his work. The truth of the word of God is you are growing up in your own sanctification for his glory. Grace has invaded your life already. Do you see the precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. And beloved, if you see him, will you rest in him and will you rejoice to know that you belong to the Christ, the Son of God?